1: understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable.
0: Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am delighted to be joined by Phil Knox, an evangelism and missiology senior specialist at the Evangelical Alliance. Phil is also the author of two books, Story Bearer and most recently, The Best of Friends.
1: We Need friends. We've got music and movies on demand. We've got the world in the palm of our hands. We've got fun trips, internships, play scripts, and hair snips. Film clips, fish and chips at the touch of our thumb tips. Need to lead or breed or feed your cat? Well, it turns out there's an app for that. But we need friends. We've got computers for a fiver, cars without a driver. We've got louder, further, faster, more, a bigger network than ever before. But we need friends. And friends are amazing. See, friendship is atomic. From the nursing home to the coffee shop, from the boardroom to the playground, it's relational connections that make the world go round. See, we were created to know and be known. It's better to eat kebabs with friends than salad on your own. And yet we trace in populous places. We're strangers in rooms of familiar faces. We crave deeper meaningfuls but experience anonymity. We dance superficially around the promise of proximity and we need friends. And quantity is no substitute for quality. We need 5G, HD, 24 carat friends, lifelong, fight strong, tag along, forgive all wrong friends. Friends to talk through our problems personal. Friends to call when the cancer's terminal. When it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, your year, you just remember what your old pal said. We get by with a little help from our friends. And look to the one who made friendship possible, whose nail-pierced hands bridged a chasm and crossable. His scandalous invitation follows the most glorious of amends. There is no greater love than they that lay their life down for their friends. So, celebrate with me the ship most worth sailing, and follow the example of the friend unfailing. May we raise our game and drop our cover, invest our energies in one another. May we still be there when the rain starts to fall. And accept the most important friend request of all because we need friends.
0: Thank you so much, Phil. I love that. I guess the, the obvious question to ask, you know, with with your book and with that amazing spoken word is why do we need friends?
1: Yeah, great question. This, um, this whole passion for me uh, was unexpected really, but it came from um, a, a dreadful pandemic. So, like many of us, had a te- I had a terrible pandemic. My first book, which you talked on a previous <laughs> podcast about, Storybearer, came out the, the in March 2020, which, if you remember, oh, uh, was the week all the bookshops closed. <laughs> so, genuinely rude. I had this moment where I uh, I got a phone call cancelling all the launch events, which I think one of you you were coming to one of them, and I kind of I went upstairs and sat under my duvet in the bed and just had this moment, a little pity party for one. <laughs> Uh, But as a result of that, you know, you pour so much energy into something, so discouraged, so disappointed. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from um, my mum, who'd uh, been fighting cancer for about six months. We found out the cancer was terminal. So I spent those first few months of the pandemic um, seeing her physically deteriorate. And then she sadly went to be with Jesus on the uh, 8th of June. And so all of that, two things got me through, faith and friendship. And so and so for me, that passion for friendship really led to me then to begin to research how good friendship is for us.
0: And you talk um, in the book about kind of um, oxytocin and cortisol and and endorphins at one point. Would you say a bit about that? Because friendship is actually physically really good for us, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it, ter- it turns out that, that the latest science uh, kind of backs up what, yeah. what the Bible talks about when it says that it's not good for us to be alone. So, yeah, so so, so physio- physiologically what happens to us when we're with friends is there's a reason it feels so good. There's a reason when you kind of have, when you have coffee with someone you say goodbye, you're just like so pumped full of of joy. And when, you know, we had a fire pit on Friday night and you sat around with friends and you're drinking something tasty. <laughs> and, and there's a reason it feels like, and that is because our brain brains being been flooded with something called oxytocin, which is known as the cuddle chemical. It's the same chemical that bonds a baby to their mother. It, it just makes us feel so good. Um, and that's what why friendship's is good, good for us. Um, but also, it really is a matter of life and death. And so you, you alluded to cortisol. So cortisol helps regulate our blood sugar levels and our, our, um, our blood pressure. It kind of gets us out of bed in the morning. It preps us for action when we kind of feel threatened. Cortisol is... is into our system getting getting us ready for fight or flight and what they've done is is they've they've um they've measured people's cortisol levels based on their proximity to friends and they found that if you don't have a close friend your baseline of cortisol is significantly higher than if you do and cortisol is really good for us in small bursts but if you've got a ba- a higher base level of cortisol it means that your body isn't doing the kind of the stuff that it should be in terms of protecting yourself from disease uh, stopping heart attacks, diabetes, those kind of things, and so studies have consistently shown that that those even if you um, uh, eat unhealthily, you smoke, you drink, you lack exercise, if you've got strong friendships, you will live longer than someone who uh, looks after themselves physically but is socially isolated. So, so the line in that spoken word piece: it, it is better to eat kebabs with friends than sell out on your own. Now, Phil Knox and the Evangelical Alliance and the Bible says you should probably <laughs> look after yourself physically. But if you're going to choose one, be a great friend and be unhealthy.
0: <laughs> because people genuinely live longer in friendship. That's yeah. that's amazing, isn't it? Wow. Now, um, you also say in your book, we were created for friendship. What do you mean by that?
1: I mean that the Bible reflects what science <laughs> kind of tells or or more, more more actually more accurately, good science tells us what the Bible what the Bible says. So we explore in the book um the Genesis account where where we that God creates the world eight times the Bible says something is good or very good. The first thing that is not good is not good for us to be alone. And I think the challenge for us as Christians is sometimes, you know, we can sing worship songs that kind of a, where the sentiment is you know, all I need is you, Jesus, and and that's I get why worship leaders write songs like that. Like I'm, I have got nothing against worship leaders, um, but but I get why we sing those songs. But it's not true. It's not what the Bible says, because the Bible says it's not good for us to be alone, and that we were created for a relationship. And and so, and I think the the Bible doesn't stop there. Throughout Scripture, that the people of God are always not just connected with. With God, but they're also connected with others, and so the beautiful friendships that we see in the Bible with Elijah and Elisha, with Paul and Timothy, with 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 Ruth and Naomi, with with David and Jonathan, over and over again. It's a relational book because we're relational people made in the image of the relational God.
0: Well, and it's interesting you talk about sort of needing to be with people because I guess the flip side of that is is loneliness. And, and you yeah. share some terrifying statistics in your book around young people, young adults particularly, and hopelessness. I mean, I think you said that, you know, um, almost a third of 18 to 24s feel hopeless, almost a fifth of 16 to 25s do not believe that life is worth living. That's really tragic, isn't it?
1: Yeah and even more tragic when you consider that that this generation is supposedly the most connected in history right mm. <laughs> so, so we 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 have got music and movies on demand we've got the world in the palm of our hands and yet yeah, 40% of 16 to 24 year olds say they always or often feel lonely so i think i think one of the reasons the book has caught fire in the last few months is, is i think we we recognize that we're in a bit of a loneliness epidemic we're also the, the effects of of covid-19 um, you know the the most one of the most dangerous things was we we weren't able to to connect with others. Loneliness during that time increased in the UK from one in twenty to one in fourteen. Um, you know that that I th- I think we we've recognised uh, the need to connect with others, and yet the the cultural waters we're swimming in are not friendship friendly.
0: So what I mean, you definitely touched on this, but but why does friendship matter now more than ever before? Is is that partly because of COVID? Is it partly because of people the sort of loneliness pandemic?
1: Yeah, I, I think I don't think it. Ma- I don't think friendship matters more now than it has done. But I think we're I think we're just I think we're living in a world which is anti-friendship. Actually, there's a whole you know a whole host of reasons why that is. But I but I think we feel it more acutely because because of the, the the narratives of individualism the cultural changes that are taking place around technology and our work and our mobility um so all of that is, is creating a perfect storm of of loneliness and so I don't I think friendships always mattered I think that the fact that it's wired the hardwired into us um but I but I do think, I, but, and also, we, because because we're living in a world of individualism, when we experience great friendship, we're like, wow! That mm. is so in contrast with the narrative of the world, which kind of says you can make it on your own. And, and also, it's really neglected. So you look at, you know, if I was asked you to open your your music playlist on your phone, or if you'd be able to find, um, my guess would be, you'd be able to find thousands of songs that talk about romantic love. Mm. It's only a fraction around friendship. You know you look at the, th- the the nature of most films and 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 TV series the there, there's a poverty around the conversation around friendship and all of that you know contributes and combines to to make make sure when we experience it and we talk about it it feels so good
0: you um you share a really interesting example of a town in your book called Rosetto an American town. Yep. Would you just yep. share a little bit about that because I just thought it was really fascinating the case study of that
1: yeah. Yeah, so 1950s Pennsylvania. Um, no one was having heart attacks in Rosetto and no one could work out why. And so these scientists kind of, went, well, why, why, why is the the heart disease rate so much lower than the rest of America? And so they looked at the water sources. They looked at the exercise regimes. They looked at their diet. The diet was um, lard-soaked meatballs, red wine, and, red wine, and cigars. So it no. wasn't. It wasn't like they were health freaks, right? <laughs> so they were like, "What is it?" And they discovered that it was the relationships. So three to four generations lived under one roof. There was religious life at the center of their community. People left their doors open. There was such high trust between people. This town really were the best of friends. And I, that was what was keeping them alive. And so that, you know, the, this anomaly in the, in, in American health records was because their friendships were so good. Then the tragedy happens about, you know, 10, 15 years later after this first study, their lives begin to reflect much more of 20th century America and, and the heart disease rates return to the national average. Um, but it shows you the kind of the, the utopia of being really good friends. It's a beautiful case study of how good friendship is for us.
0: You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. You've sort of alluded to, to lots of this already, but you, you mentioned in your book that a YouGov survey found that 18% of men and 12% of women. Don't even have one close friend. I mean, why do you think that is? And I guess, crucially, what what's the result of that?
1: Yeah. So, um, the, 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 the the as I talked about the cultural waters, I think there's loads of things there. I mean, first of all, you know, let's. I was on a train home from London last week, and I, I just decided to do a little kind of scan of the carriage. You know, there must have been 30 people in the carriage. Every single one was looking at a screen. Now, I, I, I am not anti-technology. At its best, social media is brilliant for helping us kind of connect and maintain friendships, right? We are the most connected generation. Um, I love and have beautifully loved just connecting with old school friends i have got WhatsApp groups with my uni mates and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's brilliant at its best. But at its worst, it creates an illusion of friendship, so it can lead to quantity over quality. Just because I accept you on friendship roof doesn't make us really good friends no. and and it show, research has shown that over the last few decades as social medias grown, we've got more connections than ever before but fewer really close confidants. I think you know so so one of my encouragements in the book is to pursue depth over superficiality. So it's a bit of that I think the other thing is really, our work has changed so uh, so interestingly we're not working necessarily as many hours as previous generations. But more people in households are working and, and the type of work has changed. So around 40% of people in the UK are what's called knowledge workers, which means people like you and me, Ruth, who think for a living. Um, some Sometimes. Might, some, might disagree, <laughs> some might disagree with that. A billion people, at least worldwide, are what's called knowledge workers. And and that means that that we use the same relational muscles at work as we do to make friends. Right, so, um, so, uh, for example, my best mate's a builder. Now, he would claim he also thinks at work, but when he gets home, he's been digging all day, I've been thinking all day. I am, I'm really not, I'm in a lot worse place than him to want to be friends and want to hang out because I'm mentally exhausted. Mm. So no wonder that so many of us want to just crash on the sofa and chill. And that really doesn't help. The final thing I'd say around kind of the, the social conditions is we're moving around a lot more. And friendship takes time. And so you've got cities in the UK where 40% have moved in in the last two to three years. And we know, we know that statistically, if you move on and if you move on, uh, uh, you know you're moving on the next five years, you're 20 to 25% less likely to get involved in sports club, church, uh, building relationships. And, and so many of us are moving around so frequent, frequently we don't have the opportunity to build deep friendships and we also know statistically that if you live more than 30 minutes away from someone you're way less likely to keep in touch and, and therefore that geographical thing really matters and is not going in the right direction.
0: I mean you've, you've sort of highlighted some of the pressures of, of friendship in a modern world just there but I guess the sort of crucial question is is how do we protect our friendship from some of these pressures
1: yeah, yeah great question well i mean let's let's take them one at a time yeah. <laughs> right so i think the first i mean you know you the first thing is we do need i think like i remember it was not I, I did work experience in 1999 right and i'm in this i'm in one of the biggest law firms in birmingham there was one computer to connect to the internet i'm not that old the internet is relatively new. I think we need a good conversation about a healthy relationship with technology mm. because if technology is having such a challenging p- impact on our relationships uh, and I think we just need a conversation about that. So we have a few rules in our house. Our family meal table, you're not allowed your phone at. When we got my wife, we go we go away in the next few weeks. She's just she deleted the internet from her phone. She's, I mean, she's trying to completely go off grid. Sometimes that's important. When I meet someone for coffee, my phone will be in my pocket. We've got curfews, sabbaths and sabbaticals away from our technology. Some of that, we just need, we just need to have a conversation around some of that. Um, Mac, that will help protect our friendships. Um, the work thing, I think sometimes we just have to choose. So when you take my relationship with my mate, even some evenings, I'm exhausted. I'm like, I'm going to make the effort. And, and that flies in the face of individualism and you, you know look after number one and all those things. Sometimes we have to. Great friendship, as Jesus says, is laying down your life for your friends. Sometimes that means sacrificing a nice Turner TV to go and spend some time with some people, and then the mobility thing is a real challenge because you know work sometimes moves us around and sometimes. But I, I also think some of us need to have make healthier decisions, not just based on what is the next career step, but where am I called to be? So I had someone hilariously about ten years ago come up to me and say, um. We knew your parents. They told us when when we moved to an area, the first thing to do is find a church and commit to it. So that this this couple's primary concern, on the advice of my parents, hilariously, was to when they moved to an area, was to find a church and 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 make sacrifices in other areas, like where their kids go to school, like what jobs they do, like taking the next promotion or whatever, because they felt called to a place. So there's an amazing book I've read recently called The Power of Place by Daniel Grother. Who says that sometimes the most significant thing you can do is choose to stay? And I, th- I wonder whether, for some of us, the way that we make, we prioritize our friendships is by staying in a place, even though we could move to a bigger house, even though we could get a better job. Sometimes our relationships are more important. This is all
0: such helpful stuff, Phil, and and I think the, the kind of technology piece is is such an important question, isn't it? And I, and I think you said something so interesting in your book, which you've alluded to just now as well, but that research has shown that the mere presence of a phone on the table when two friends are connecting, even if the phone doesn't go off, has a detrimental effect on the interaction. I yeah. think that's so interesting, isn't it? Just even it being there and not doing yeah. anything can kind of impact yeah. the, the interaction. And, and so... You know you say that being completely present is a choice worth making which i totally agree with but i guess the question is how how does that work practically how how practically can we make sure that we are present in all of our interactions i guess particularly in the context of friendship but also in all of our relationships it's really important to be present isn't it
1: i think i think it depends on the individual but for me i can speak personally personally i need some rules (laughs) <laughs> right i need some rules i have a really unhealthy at my worst i have a really unhealthy uh relationship with technology so i've got a few rules so i never when i'm at home have my phone next to me while i sleep it charges downstairs why because i don't want my last words at night to be on a social media app i want them to be to to my wife or to jesus <laughs> so, because i want to be present right um Another rule that we have is that with well, no phones, no phones at the dinner table. Um, I think I talk about in the book about not even my 4-year-old's Paw Patrol uh phone which is infuriates him even though it's not connected to anything. He's like no if I'm not having my phone, you're not having yours. <laughs> um and that has led to much healthier family engagement around the te- around the tea table. Another another rule when we go on holiday, I'm disconnected. I will not go on on a load of social media stuff when we are when we're in Scotland and I'm looking at the view i I'm, I don't want to be posting that to Instagram. Um, I want to enjoy the view and be present in that moment with my family and my creator. So I think it's down to the individuals for for people to work out what what they what they do. but for me, I found a few rules really help.
0: And I guess, you know, it's it's clearly an issue for all of us in, in modern society to, to a certain extent. So many of us are obviously influenced by social media, but it but it has a particularly large impact on young people, often tragically a negative impact, doesn't it? I, I suppose you've definitely touched on this with, with your roles and what you do with your family. But how do you think we help our children and our young people to navigate this world of technology? Because it's clearly not a question of just saying, don't use it. don't ever go Work. on social media. Don't use your technology because that's effectively like asking them to like you know chop off an arm or re- or exist yeah. without breathing but but how do we help them to to navigate it in a kind of helpful way? Do you think, Phil?
1: Yeah, I'd love to listen to a podcast of myself in ten years because <laughs> uh, I've I've got a ten year old who who will probably next summer when he starts going to secondary school have his have his first phone. So um, at this point, if we if we can go to the callers and
0: any <laughs> <laughs> <How laughs> advice with the
1: teenagers because I don't know, um, I I think for, but I, I guess what we the best thing we can do I think as parents is try and model it from an example. I guess what I um, all the research i've read around faith and and development of teenagers uh says that 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 w- w- what parents and a significant adult adults model is the most significant factor in whether a whether a teenager will make it through as a follower of jesus and i think probably um it at our worst my wife and i will be sat at home on our phones while our kids want to talk to us at our best, we have a really healthy relationship with technology. That that hopefully gives a good example um, uh, to our kids, and therefore, that's the, I think hopefully that's the best thing we can do. Um, and then probably some wisdom. I, I, I don't know about you, Ruth. I'm really glad that social media wasn't around when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah, I was I was already I was already deeply insecure. Um, no girls ever liked me. And this would have only just, you know, this would only just have exaggerated the, the insecurities that I had as a teenager. And so I think just being aware of that, being aware of the issues, having good conversations. I intend to continually talk to my teenager as, as, as they, teenagers, as they develop around some of this. But I think, you know, modeling something, trying to encourage, but also in combat some of the identity stuff. By constantly affirming them in their identity as a family member and as a follower of Jesus.
0: That's really helpful. I I think as well, one of the best things I heard was about kind of creating a family contract where everyone sort of, everyone contributes to the contract and then everyone signs it. So if there's any sort of grappling with it afterwards, you say, well, you know, we agree to this as a family. And actually your suggestions were just as helpful as our suggestions. So in some ways you need to pull me up on that stuff as well. And then it's, you know, we're all in this together. Phil, as we come to the end of this podcast, you know we're all so busy. Time is one of the pressures on our friendships for sure. How do we prioritize our friendships in the busyness of life?
1: Yeah, I, I think for for me, one of the breakthrough moments as I've researched the book is looking at the example of jesus. and and it's a re- it was a really awkward moment for me because we like to think that Jesus was the most fair person in history. Right, you know, we believe in a God of justice, but the way in which Jesus spread his time amongst his disciples wasn't fair. And this really, I, there were a the few, the few, I like, four moments in the Gospels which were really great, where you have where kind of Jesus says to nine of his disciples, "You stay there," and says to Peter, James, and John, "Come with me." And that was a real breakthrough moment for me when I considered how we, how we. how we invest in a few people really well and so and so what what i want encourages us to do is think about how do we not spread ourselves so thinly you know that we have such finite relational energy we have such finite time how do we spend that really well and so one of my encouragements is is not not to become really kind of cut and dry and mechanical about it but actually to, to ask God, and ask yourself: Who are the people I really need to spend a disproportionate amount of time with? Which are the friendships I really need to invest in, and to, and to do so do so accordingly. And I think for me, that has been the only way in which I can can manage the kind of the 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 breadth of relationships, um, and to, and to harness the power of friendship and to fight the pressure on friendship is to think about the kind of the who are the people I'm really going to invest in. And that will be my, my encouragement, really. And and so in the book, we unpack more about how we do that. But, um, but that's a really healthy and needy conversation, I think, we need to have.
0: Phil, thank you so much. We're going to be unpacking The Best of Friends, your brilliant book, a little bit more in the next episode. But thank you so much for joining us today. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
1: You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.